If you will, open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 17. I'll actually begin reading because of the uh, context back in verse 15. But that's where we're going to begin for our study today. And I'm going to read verses 15 through 18. But even to this day, when Moses is read... A veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the Spirit. Now, uh, we talked about last week the fact of an illustration that Paul is using. In the Old Testament, for instance, when uh, you have Moses going in to speak with the Lord and he comes out, what would happen to his face? It'd shine, it would glow. How bright was it? It was so bright that the people couldn't even look at Moses. Uh, for instance, if you have been inside and you go outside and you look at the, you know, the bright sunlight, do you ever have to squint your eyes a little bit because the sunlight is so bright? And you can't even look toward the sun. Many times when I'm coming to work early in the morning, the sun's just rising from the east and as I'm facing that and I get to the red light out here at Old Smithville Road, I have to put my visor down and then just look real close around the corner to see the red light because it perfectly lines up with the sun. You understand? Have you ever had that kind of situation happen to you? Well, with that kind of thing, that's the brilliance of Moses' face. So Moses would put a veil on his face so the children of Israel could not see that glory, that radiance dissipating, going away. And so what would take place now, Paul's saying, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies upon their heart. It's not a physical veil, it's a spiritual or figurative one. And what it is, they cannot see the end of that Old Testament law. But verse 16 says, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. How is it that when you turn to the Lord, the veil is removed? Now, don't everybody answer at once. I, you know, you're all getting me confused, everybody. When you accept Jesus Christ and what He means... What does that do with the Old Testament? You have to understand, the, if you understand the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and you understand the Old Covenant did not have a perfect sacrifice, it only had uh, the offerings of bulls and goats, and then you come to the New Testament, but you have the perfect sacrifice of Christ, you understand that Jesus has... Let's use this word carefully. Supplanted Moses. What do you mean when you, when you say supplanted? Replaced. In other words, Moses was the one to whom they were to listen. 
But you remember Moses himself had said that God would raise up a prophet like unto me from among your brethren and unto him you shall hearken. And with that thought in mind, do you remember when the Mount of Transfiguration that Peter, James, and John had gone up to the Mount with the Lord and appeared unto them Moses and Elijah and uh, Peter wanted to build three tabernacles, three booths, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. There came a voice from heaven, and what did it say? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And there, here's something he adds to the end of it, different from his baptism. Hear you Him. In other words, He is the one that you are to listen to now. It is His new covenant. And so when one turns to the Lord here, then the veil is taken away. Verse 17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, there's two things, I think, in that passage that needs a little bit of discussion. This passage is confusing to a lot of people. And what confuses them is the fact that says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit. Some people have the idea that you have God the Father who's in charge, Jesus is somehow under Him, and the Holy Spirit is somehow under Jesus. Is that the way the Bible portrays them? They all work together. Listen to what Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 in the beginning. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, being found in the fashion of a man. He humbled himself. You see, Jesus was in a position of equality with the Father. And he lowered himself, he humbled himself, to use a proper term here, so that he could serve man. But there is equality there. And when you start talking about who is God, God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I'm afraid that we do not give the Holy Spirit his just deserving honor as being a member of the Godhead. And I think here when he says the Lord is the Spirit is much like Jesus is saying the Father and I are one as the Father is in me and I in you uh, from John chapter 16 and 17. Okay, so he says where the Spirit of the Lord is there is liberty. Now uh, considering this is the week of the 4th of July A lot of people will be talking about liberty. What is liberty? Freedom. Freedom. Okay. It's freedom. Freedom from what? Okay. In our country, it's freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, free speech. You know, you can enumerate the Bill of Rights. 
But in the Bible, there are two aspects of liberty. The first aspect of it is freedom from sin. Remember John 8 and verse 32? Jesus said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Free from what? Sin is the context there. But I want you to flip back with me to, or flip forward in your Bibles, to the book of Galatians, to chapter 5. And let's look at verse 1 and verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 1 and verse 13. And he says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and be not entangled again into a yoke of bondage. Now, the words bondage and free are set in opposition to one another, liberty and bondage. Now, uh, what is the bondage that he speaks of here in chapter 5, verse 1? No, not sin this time. It's the law of Moses. Okay, drop down with me to verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called into liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What he is referring there is sin. But in verse 1, he's referring to the Old Testament law, the yoke of bondage, the yoke of that Old Testament law. So... My point is simply this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17, where he says there is liberty, I think he is talking about being free from the Old Testament law, because that's the context in which he is speaking. Now verse 18 is a great add-on, tack-on if you will to that. But we all, with an unveiled face, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same glory from uh, same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now notice, we all with an unveiled face. If you're unveiled, what does that tell you? According to verse 16. You put those two verses together. Your face is not covered. But why was a person's face not covered according to verse 16? They turned to the Lord. So if you are a Christian now, you've turned to the Lord, the veil has been taken away, and you are beholding the Lord. And he uses a figure here, as in a mirror, beholding his face as in a mirror. Now, when you start looking in the Bible, the word mirror that appears in most of the text, most of the passages, is a word which describes a polished piece of brass or a polished piece of metal. And like, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, uh, when Paul talks about in chapter 13, he says, but now we see darkly. And then he says, as in a mirror. When he's talking there, uh, how good were the mirrors of the first century? Not very good. Uh, you you know, imagine going out and trying to see your face in the side of your car, the reflection of it. Would that be a very good mirror? Probably not. But this is not the word. This is a unique word. Here's what the lexicon says. 
It says to show in a mirror to present a clear and a correct image of a thing. And so what he's talking about here is this is you're beholding as if you're seeing the very thing itself. You know, like a mirror reflects something back to you. This is not saying something that's hard to see. This is like you're seeing a good reflection. So I'm looking into this mirror and like I'm looking at the very face of the Lord. And when I stare at him, when I contemplate who he is and I think about who he is, what happens to me? Look at the verse 18 there. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and our being what? Changed or transformed. I like the word transformed. Same word found in uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. The Greek word is metamorphe, from which we get a word metamorphosis, like a caterpillar to a butterfly. And uh, so as I look at the Lord, as I contemplate Him, I am being transformed into the same image that He is. Have you ever seen people study their Bible every day and they start reading about Jesus, they start learning about His life? What do they soon become? More about Jesus, would I know? More of His grace to others show? That's what that song is trying to bring out is, is that as we look at Jesus, and the only way we can look at Him is through His Word, the more we look at Him, we're being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So I think He's trying to emphasize the importance of this new covenant and how this new covenant reveals Jesus and who He is and what He is. Okay, do you have any questions on chapter 3? Good, because I'm ready for chapter 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Therefore. You know what that word means, don't you? What's it therefore? What's it there, F-O-R? It's telling you to look back and see why these things are. It's always indicating a conclusion. Therefore, since we have this ministry, what ministry? The ministry of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit gives life, he says. Going back into chapter 2. As we have received mercy, God has been kind and merciful to us. We didn't deserve this. This is God's kindness toward us. He uses a phrase here. If you're reading the original King James, it says, faint. The New King James says, we do not lose heart. What is it to lose heart? To be discouraged? To give up? Now, why would a person give up? You just think in your mind, what would cause you to give up and quit? 
No progress? Okay. Let me ask you a question. Let's put it as a preacher. Think of it as a preacher. I know some of you women say, I can't do that. So just imagine you're a man. Okay, you go out and you work hard and you preach and you teach and you get no results. You want to quit? Well, let's let's not just do that. Let's do a door-to-door salesman. He comes knocks on the door. He says, David, I want to sell you a vacuum cleaner. What do you tell him? No, you don't slam the door. You say, sorry, I don't need one. (laughs) Okay, he goes to the next door. And I need to sell you a vacuum cleaner. Next door, I need to sell you a vacuum cleaner. And after he's knocked about 10 or 12 doors and he gets nobody who's interested in the vacuum cleaner, does he want to keep on going? No, he wants to quit. Listen to Luke chapter 18, verse 1. He spoke a parable to them that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Do you ever feel like sometimes that being a Christian, you're not accomplishing anything? That you're wasting your time? At some point in life, you feel like, I'm putting everything I've got into it. What kind of mistake am I making? I don't think I know of any preacher anywhere who has not felt that at least somewhere during his time as a preacher. I'm going to tell you, I don't think there's a parent anywhere who not who somewhere at some point in their life doesn't feel like, I can't believe it. I just, I'm the sorriest parent in the world. Any of y'all ever felt like that? If you haven't, let me introduce you to to reality. Uh, Okay, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. I'll give you another good reason why people sometimes want to give up. Why they get discouraged. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. Any of you ever get discouraged because your health starts deteriorating and you can't do what you used to do? (laughs) I knew I'd get an amen out of that somewhere. Uh, Reality sets in sometimes that we can't do what we used to could do. And there are limitations on what we can do. And you want to give up. You know, he's like, okay, I want you to accomplish this. Okay, well, I'm going to work real hard to do it. But you can't do it this way, and you can't do it this way, and you can't do it this way. Well, I just give up then. You understand the point I'm trying to make? Let's go to Galatians 6, verse 9. Galatians 6 and verse 9. The word weary here is translated from the same Greek word lose heart is in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1. So just think of the word weary the same there. And let us not grow weary in doing good for in due season we will reap if we faint not or we uh, do not lose heart. 
Any of you ever tried to do good for somebody and uh, they not really appreciate it? And you do something good for somebody else and they don't seem to appreciate it? After a while, how do you get to thinking? Why try? You know, Nobody cares that I'm doing anything that's good. Nobody appreciates what I'm doing. Um, his point is, you will reap in due season if you faint not, lose, don't lose heart. God's going to reward you in the end. Don't give up on all this. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13. Ephesians 3, verse 13. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. My tribulations, my sufferings, my afflictions. Um, you know, if you do something and it is painful, what do you usually do? Stop. You don't do it anymore. You know, uh, the doctor, person went to the doctor and said, Doc, every time in the morning when I drink coffee, I get this terrible pain in my eye. And the doctor says, well, take your spoon out before you drink your coffee. <laughs> Sometimes what we're doing produces pain and uncomfort. And if you do it repeatedly, then after a while you get saying, this is not pleasurable, this is painful. I quit. I give up. Now what I've done, I've just chosen a few of the examples that are in the Bible. Let's go back now to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have received this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We're not discouraged. And I want to tell you, there's a good reason for Paul to be discouraged. There are people working against him here at Corinth. If you drop down to verse 8 and 9, you're going to see that he is receiving all kinds of difficulty. But he said, folks, I'm not giving up. I'm not discouraged. I'm not giving in. Let's look at verse 2 now. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now there's this word here, the hidden things of shame, what are those hidden things of shame? Well, he's going to explain them. In fact, I'd suggest to you there's what's known. Y'all know what a participle is? It's those words that ends in I and G that explains things. Well, he says, we have renounced the hidden things of shame. And then you notice these I and G words that follow. That, those are explanation. Let me give you an illustration. of this. I, I like studying... I hated studying grammar when I was in school. I like it now. I don't know why. I guess I've grown up a little bit. But uh, if you're 
father says, go out and clean the car, washing it and vacuuming it. What are washing and vacuuming explaining? Cleaning of the car. The word clean is your verb there. Your participles are washing and vacuuming. Here your lead verb in this is to renounce, and he gives us hidden things of shame, and then he starts using these ing words. Not walking in craftiness. Now what is craftiness? Well, let's go to Luke 20, verse 33. Luke 20, verse 33. And when you get to Luke chapter 20, verse 33, you are being... Uh, confronted with the Sadducees. I used them in our lesson this morning. Verse 33, or excuse me, verse 23, I'm sorry. Uh, you got to go back earlier. This is a question about money. Uh, verse 23, I said 33, it's 23. He said, but when he perceived their craftiness, he said to them, why do you test me? What does he mean when he talks about their craftiness? Luke Okay. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to deceive him. You know, can somebody ask you a question that you can't answer? I mean, a question that you supposedly know the answer to, but you can't answer it. There's what's called the fallacy of a complex question. You all know the famous version of it. Have you quit beating your wife? How can you answer that question and be right? If you answer yes, that means you used to beat her, but you're not beating her now. And if you answer no, that means you're beating her now. So, you, you know, you're caught. That's a complex question. They're asking two questions mixed in one, and you can't answer it because it's a complex question. Did they ever try to trick Jesus by asking a complex question? Yes, they did. So that's trickiness, craftiness. And Paul says, we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness. We're not the kind of people who go around and say, okay, how can we get them here? How can we uh, set them up so that they'll fall and we'll look like the good guys and they'll look like the bad guys? Okay? Let's... Um, Let's go to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. I've got a whole bunch of these, but I'm not going to use all of them. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. 
tell me, how did Satan persuade Eve to do what God told Eve not to do? He had a little word not, but there's more to it than just that. Okay, he mixed a little deception with truth. He said, you know, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Would they be knowing good and evil? Yeah, but not the way they wanted to know good and evil. But Eve saw that the fruit was to be desired and to make one wise. Y'all ever thought about that? It wasn't that just the food looked good to eat, but what Satan put in front of her was to appeal to her lust, not only for food, but also for another type of lust, which was mental lust. I want to be as good as God. I want to know as much as God. That's the vanity of the mind. And so what he did, he was crafty. Is the devil crafty today? In this very context. You remember in chapter 1 he says, That no advantage be gained over us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Okay. So Paul says, We have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Now, uh, I think that's uh, two different aspects he's talking about. Number one, to be crafty is to be conniving, to be uh, uh, deceitful in the way that you're approaching someone. But now there's another aspect here about handling the word of God deceitfully. Explain to me what that would involve. How could you handle the Word of God deceitfully? Okay. Do you remember when Satan tempted Christ? He said, command yourself, I mean, throw yourself off this pinnacle of the temple. For it is written, he will give his angels charge concerning you, lest you, at any time, you dash your foot against a stone. He quoted scripture to Jesus. How do you handle it when someone quotes scripture to you and they're not using it properly? Quote scripture back to them or show them that they're taking that passage out of context. You know, last week or two weeks ago, we studied about Ephesians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 or 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. How many of you have ever had some of your faith-only friends use that verse to you to say, you don't have to be baptized? I've had it used numerous times. And I point out to them, I say, so you're saying we're saved by grace alone? And they'll say, yes. And I say, well, then faith's not necessary. Oh, yeah, you've got to believe that's a part of grace. Oh, no, you can't add that. Because that's a work. And Oh, no, no, that's not a work. John 6, verses 28 29 says it's a work. 
Okay. We're saved by grace through faith. And I said, okay, I believe that. And they said, but where's your baptism? I said, through faith. You remember the eunuch? See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? If you believe with all your heart, you may. What was he responding by? Faith. Wasn't a work. He's responding by faith. And how does faith come? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But you see, some people will take a passage out of its context and try to make it say something that it does not say. Is it easy for a person to want to do that? Do you suppose that some of these people were taking the law of Moses, which is the context, and saying, see, you're Jews, you people that are Jews, the law of Moses was given to you, you want to become a Christian, you've got, and you Gentiles are going to have to become a Jew first. Do you remember Acts 15? There arose a contention because... There were some who had come to Antioch saying, unless you keep the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. These people are handling the word of God deceitfully. Let me give you an example or two of this from the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 2, 3. For our exhortation did not come of error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. 1 Peter 2, verse 1. Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking, and so forth. Um, The idea is is that those who are Christians never are deceitful with God's Word. So if we've renounced the hidden things of shame, we won't be tricking people, and we won't be taking the Word of God out of its context, will we? And notice the last part of verse 2 here. But by manifestation of the truth. Now, what does the word manifestation mean? That's a big old long word with a lot of letters in it. Huh? Make something reveal. To show something. If I manifest to you what's in my pocket, they're keys. I've shown you something. Paul says, by the manifestation of truth. What's he done? He's shown them the truth. Let them see it. He says, commending ourselves to every man's conscience. What is the conscience? Okay. You know, sometimes we, uh, we think of it as the little guy that sits on one shoulder wearing a red suit to say, all right, do it, do it, do it. And the guy on the other shoulder wearing the white suit said, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. That's not as far off as you think it is. Let's go back to Romans chapter 2 for just a second. Sometimes illustrations have uh, sources in the Scripture. Romans chapter 2. And uh, let's begin with about verse 
15. Who show the work of the law. It's talking about the Gentiles from verse 14. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness. And between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them. Notice, accusing or excusing. My conscience tells me on everything that I do, either you did the right thing, it excuses me, or I did the wrong thing and it accuses me. Which is pretty much like the two guys on the shoulders, isn't it? And it is the inner mind that does that. It's that part of man that says you're doing the right thing or you're doing the wrong thing. Now, when you listen to somebody, you can say they're telling the truth or they're not telling the truth. And you submit that to somebody else's conscience to either accuse or excuse you. So Paul is saying, you listen to what I presented to you, what I manifested to you. You look at the way I conducted myself, the way that the others who were with me conducted themselves. And I commend that to your conscience, the truth that we have preached. He says, in the sight of God. Not only am I commending myself to your consciences, I'm also standing before God giving account for what I have done. What's Paul trying to get across here? What's his purpose in doing this? He's trying to establish his integrity. That he's a man telling the truth. And these other people who are trying to undermine Paul, they're not telling the truth. And he says, brethren, here I am. Here's what I've taught. Here's how I've conducted myself. And you know whether or not I am doing the right or not. And I thought I would get through about verse 13 or 14. So we were all the way to begin chapter uh, 4, verse 3 next week. And I will tell you next week so you'll know everybody will be in the auditorium next Sunday morning because of Vacation Bible School. So you can just go ahead and crowd on in because I'll probably have to teach from the front. But that's where we'll all be together next Sunday. So thank you very much.